Okay, I'm going to have to just press record. I can't even decide where to have my microphone. I guess I'm, I'm sort of going like ad hoc again, like in my bedroom with this on my lap. So I kind of feel like I, I look a little bit like a pundit for a sports commentary thing, which, you know, that could be Grand Prix, which, you know, that's kind of on brand. Hello, welcome or welcome back to Photo Slut. I am Laura Lamb Mallet. I am a photographic artist, educator, and full-time photo slut. This feels really strange. I can't get back used to sort of, I don't even know where to put my microphone. I feel like I'm just sort of sat here, like, I don't know, it all feels a bit weird, which probably uh, leads me to apologize for ghosting everyone for a couple of weeks. I think I have that awful problem where I'll take on loads of things and I don't, it's probably, it's actually just called ADHD probably, um, where I don't manage, you know, I, or I just do everything at the same time. So I couldn't keep to my podcast schedule, um, and I got flapped, but, um, hopefully today's worth waiting for, um, but we'll see. Might might not be. This might be. This might be the beginning of the end. Um, it might be my my downfall. Uh, so yeah, and I'm really sorry. Thanks for sticking with me. We're gonna have this episode, the final episode, and then we're gonna have a summer break, and then we're gonna start again early September for season two. I think it's gonna be season two or series two. I don't know which one to call it. Um, sound off in the comments, but yeah, so that would be that would be cool. Um, got some great guests lined up for um, the beginning of next season slash series. Really excited for that. Um, hopefully, we're going to get into it and you know expand on everything wild and crazy in in photo world. So this is going to be the second episode i think it's the second episode yeah no the second episode in the gaze series um and this is a series where we look at this idea of the gaze and we sort of deconstruct it but we look at its origins and how it changes um and what it means now in society and whether it's sort of valid anymore um, whether we can sort of critique it uh in the same way it sort of critiques us if that makes sense and we're able to sort of look at these things with lots of different lenses and different eyes and how we see we sort of um loaded with so much visual knowledge and coding these days that we're able to look outside our own characteristics to see things on behalf of other people and we have a sort of more thorough and well-rounded understanding of of how imagery uh, affects people or you know for better or for worse and so forth so i've had this episode booked in for a while it was actually one of the first episodes that i sort of put in my spreadsheet i'm one of those people that uses spreadsheets because it's a nice table not to do sums which i know is is cripplingly embarrassing but everything just looks neat and it's lined up um but when i started there were some things that i really wanted to talk about and that was sort of my the reason why i started the podcast and a couple of those things haven't been addressed but they've been pushed back to season two because i don't want to sort of half arse it you know 
Uh, but this is one of them, not because I'm particularly well versed in it and I know a lot about it, but what I think what I'll say later on will start to filter through and make sense. Um, and I, I think this is a lot more about me um, deconstructing my own va values and what I find appealing and what inspired me when I'm younger and how I feel about these things now and things that have been a part of my life forever. So, I, you know, in the first episode of The Gaze, I said that that was going to be our sort of ground zero and I was going to lay my cards out on the table and I wanted to critique, but I was open to critique myself and I wanted it to be a conversation. Now, I know I said that and this is the second one where I'm just talking about myself, but you know, I'll preface this with saying, please get involved, please, if you have anything to say on this subject, or you're interested, or you think it's right, or you think it's wrong, or, you know, whatever. But, um, this weekend seems particularly poignant to sort of record this and talk about these things. I feel like if you had to show aliens me, you would show them this weekend. On Saturday, I'm going to Bristol Pride, and on Sunday, it's the Silverstone Grand Prix. And never have I had a weekend that sums up my personality so beautifully and so succinctly. And there are a lot of these things that feed into each other. And I was, we sort of touched on this with Jamie, where we spoke about, you know, liking sports, um in the art world but I think there are some sports that can sort of be seen as highbrow or acceptable among the sort of glitterati you know like like Wimbledon you know Wimbledon is like I don't know it might as well be like freeze fair or something um and I think F1 sort of had has that relationship definitely with this you know the the, the grid walk and the celebrity presence and and one of the things that I'm so drawn to about it is this sort of theatre and this um, excitement uh, and chicness that, that sort of, you know, just is absolutely embedded in, in this event. And I don't think it's actually a surprise that this is the sport that I'm interested in. Um, and I just fill my Instagram feeds with, you know, F1 memes. Um, but saying that, again, this is going to be one of those episodes where I just talk myself in circles before I get on to my next point. You know, I really should start writing myself a script. The history or my history with sort of motorsport is that my family really like it. My dad sort of, we always had it on in the background or like, you know, my family, you like cars and they've actually moved on to motorbikes now, which I'm not interested in, but you know, I love cars. I've always loved cars. My mum had a had a Nissan GTR with a baby seat strapped in it when I was a baby. You know, <laughs> child services come for us, whatever you want to do. You know, and it was always a thing, whether it was like, you know, I love Land Rovers, you know, I love sports cars and I love all of these things. And and it was definite, definitely signposted to me, you know, success and exhilaration and adrenaline and you know sort of this fabrication of 
of I don't know maybe self belief and you know you sort of put yourself you know when you put your foot down and you go and everything's very exciting. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is like Formula One is camp. It really is, and I think it's it's theatre, it's glamour. You know the old Instagram accounts that you can look at that show you. You know, tell me a camper event than the Monaco Grand Prix. There isn't one, you know. It's all about the champagne names. And if you look at the history, I am going to do a whole another episode of um, the history and sort of visual history of Formula One. Because I love the, the cigarette um, adverts on the side. And, you know, this idea of jumping in a car and it's exhilarating and you go fast. And come on, they're all really sexy and... You know, all of these things, they ooze glamour and, and you know, sex, effectively. Um, but yeah, so I'm not going to really talk about the F1 too much today. Because, uh, like I said, that's for a different day. But I do think there's this relationship between um, my interests and my excitement. And, you know, lots of these things that tie together and why I'm interested in them all feed off the same couple of threads. Um, yeah. But today in particular, I'm going to be talking about the Pirelli calendar. And like I said, I don't know so much about it. I probably know more about Pirelli tyres than I do about the Pirelli calendar. And it's always been this sort of uh, mythological thing that sort of, you know, simmers in the back of my mind and I, and I know the idea of it people know the idea of it and I think probably people older than me who maybe grew up more with the sort of production of it back in the day maybe would know you know would be more familiar um but I think yeah I, I don't know I'm, I'm not uh, it's sort of like a it's a bit like the playboy centerfold it's it's sort of maybe the title of it means more than what it is fundamentally. I'm not sure. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that. But what I thought I would do in that case is if I don't know much about it, I sort of semi-assume that a lot of other people don't know much about it either. I really hope this isn't picking up the people outside because I paused for a bit to see if they would go, but I might have to throw a bucket of water out the window in a minute. Um. So... I've got the history here of the Pirelli calendar and what I thought I would do is I would basically read through it as opposed to me giving you the download on it because that information just won't be accurate. So I might sound a little bit robotic but I thought that I know enough about it to be able to deliver this nicely but I haven't read through some of the stuff that I've got written in front of me which might give us a nice authentic real-time reaction but if that reaction is awful obviously I'll just cut it <laughs> I'll redo it wow how amazing um so yeah this is uh, taken from a couple of different websites I tried to go for factual information and then maybe we can pull together some stuff where people give their opinions on controversies controversies Sean Connery controversies etc um yeah, we'll, 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 let's just lay it down and then we'll go from there. So, the Pirelli calendar, or the Cal, as it's known in the industry. I don't know which industry, I don't think it's the motor industry, but there we are. 
um, was the brainchild of Pirelli UK Limited, which is the of the group's British leg, and it worked on the project um, sort of from from conception onwards. In 1964. The department was looking for a new marketing strategy to help Pirelli stand out from domestic competition. So other tyre manufacturers, I think off the top of my head, Michelin, Dunlop, uh, Bridgestone, maybe, let's say. God, I'm really showing off. But yeah, that's what they, that's sort of the baseline of what they wanted to do. They appointed the art director Derek Forsyth and the British photographer Robert Freeman, who took a lot of images of the Beatles, um, to produce this new project and, you know, make it sort of sexy for the market. The result was a refined, exclusive product with artistic and cultural connotations that from the start set it apart from the world of fashion and glamour. Interesting. For the 50 years since then, the Cal has continued to mark the passing of time with images by the hi most highly acclaimed photographers of the moment. Whoa, 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 whoa. Mainstream, high-end production photographers, I would say. Capturing and interpreting contemporary culture and often setting new trends. From 1964 to 2021, a total of 48 Pirelli calendars have been produced by 37 photographers. So now, there wasn't a calendar in 2020. No, sorry, there was one in 2020 because it was shot in 2019. There wasn't one in 2021 uh, because of COVID. And there was a 2022 edition, uh, which was shot by Brian Adams. And then the 2023 one that we're going to talk about a little bit later on, uh, which is to come out later this year, I believe, um, is shot by a photographer, Emma Summerton, and is absolutely beautiful. Uh, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the early years of the cow were the days of the Beatles, rock music and the miniskirt. I love whoever wrote this. It's so fun. But also youth protest movement and anti-Vietnam peace rallies. The calendar soon cast off its original role as a corporate freebie for key clients, becoming an exclusive publication destined for a select few recipients. The models were mostly young newcomers photographed in an atmospheric elite settings, exotic beach backdrops and natural locations. But even these early glossy images yielded a glimpse of the calendar's true aesthetic and cultural philosophy. wonder what they're... Oh, okay, it says what the philosophy is. The cow is aspired to be, sorry? The cow aspired to be a sign of changing times. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, we'll get on to that later. In 1968, Harry Piccinotti took inspiration from the poetry of Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Allen Ginsberg and Ronsard. I'm butchering this. Ronsard, while the following year he rejected formal poses for more natural, spontaneous shots captured on California's sunny beaches. In 1972, Sarah Moon became the first woman photographer to shoot the calendar, shattering taboos along the way. Shattering taboos? I don't know whether they were shattering taboos, but maybe we'll revisit those in a minute. The announcement in March 1974 that the publication was to come to a halt caused much more of an outcry in the British and international media than the launch had, a sure sign of the growing success of the Pirelli calendar. 
In the following decade, various books, collections and anthologies in different languages were devoted to it, the most famous being a 1975 publication covering the ten years of the Cal, complete with a nostalgic foreword by none other than David Niven. So there was a ten-year gap between the announcement of the end of the Pirelli calendar and the beginning of it basically going back into production. And they talk about this on their on their website where they say like the three ages of the Pirelli calendar, which I think is quite interesting because it gives us a sort of time frame to almost uh, hold it to account slightly, or I feel like we can talk about it in terms of, I don't know what the word is, maybe periods of time that end up being a snapshot and that's quite interesting because you know their ethos and their interest in you know revitalizing the calendar and pushing it onwards and why it has this big budget is to be a marker of time and to be a marker of culture um cultural shift which is kind of interesting because this seems to be the moment where it changes into quite a glamorous or a lot of the models now that have started to be used are models that we know and I think this is the phase where the photographers start to repeat themselves maybe slightly you've got you know the sort of Stephen Meisels, um, Peter Lindbergh, Patrick uh, de Marchier. So in 1984 we finally saw the the return of the calendar. There was a new art director, Martin Walsh, and the calendar went back to its roots. And I find this really funny, but they use sort of discreet and subliminal messaging to to, to advertise the tyres, which I think is quite, um, yeah, I don't know. It sort of makes sense, but not really at all. So like tyre tracks in, in the sand in the Bahamas. And I think there's a dress with some tyre marks across the back of it, which is like incorporated into the design of the dress. Um, yeah, really interesting. Um, but it just seemed to be quite a, a sort of strange... I don't know, it's like exactly what the purpose of it was for, but also completely bizarre okay so i also found out that the halt in publication was due to the world oil crisis which sort of makes sense now for a tire company in 1987 terence donovan so terence donovan is an english was sorry an english photographer um famous for sort of shooting the 60s a lot of sort of black and white, you know, twiggy portraits, that that type of thing. Twiggy portraits, you know what I mean. So he had a lot to do with um, the British press uh, um, and photographed a lot of celebrities and was sort of well into that scene. So I'm going to read this bit as, as they've written it out. In 1987, Terence Donovan created a groundbreaking calendar featuring only black models, which included a 16-year-old Naomi Campbell at the start of her career. Now, that's not really when Naomi Campbell's career started because she was in a Bob Marley music video at the age of eight. But let's say as a professional working model on the brink of being a supermodel, that 
that's sort of the start or the, the, the early times in her career. The next year was the first time a male model was included as it was, you know, a traditionally a showcase of feminine beauty. Um, and in 1990 was the first um, calendar shot all in black and white and it was devoted to the Olympics. So in 1993, coinciding with the end of another decade, after a change in the company's top management, there was another another important turning point. I just want to remind you that I'm reading this almost verbatim. Pirelli upped its ante internationally by launching a high-profile advertising campaign, including the famous in- image of the sprinter Carl Lewis in red stilettos, and the calendar became one of the key tools for conveying the group's new image. How many new images does a tyre company need? I think it's sort of like Hoover rebranding. Hoover's a... Well, actually, maybe with Dyson. I don't know. You know what I mean. Like a biro. Um, The artistic direction moved into the company's Milan headquarters and it was decided that all references to tyres should be dropped again. So, just to recap, references to tyres, then they were dropped, then they were brought back, now they're dropped again. Finished. And the calendar went back to just being itself. In quote marks, an artistic publication with no limitations or restrictions placed on its creators except the canons of style and good taste. Hmm. End quote marks. Pirelli, after all, is an international brand that is not identified with a single product family, but evokes a broad stretch a broad spectrum of values and meanings. It's a fucking tyre. First and foremost, the commitment to innovation and the quest for excellence elements. Elements that have always inspired the calendar too. I don't know. I feel like last year there were some like real critical moments where the Pirelli tyres, I cannot speak, where the Pirelli tyres were failing in um, a couple of the F1 races. And I'm sure there was an investigation into them. They just weren't lasting long enough or they were shredding. I'm sure Max popped a tyre. I mean, somebody probably paid for that. But yeah, I'm sure. So I don't know what these company values are, but, you know, there we are. In 1994, Herb Ritz launched a new era, another new era of the calendar with a phenomenal lineup of supermodels. Cindy Crawford, Helena Christensen, Kate Moss and Karen Alexander. His calendar, entitled An Homage to Women... I thought, sort of thought this whole thing was a homage to women, set out to capture the women of the 90s and their place in the world. Proud, sexy and beautiful on the inside. That is exactly what a calendar of semi-naked women does. It, it shows you the beauty on the inside. Because when we send nudes to people, we're showing them our beauty on the inside. Since then, the creative talent of the photographers and spellbinding allure of the models have been cornerstones of the Pirelli calendar's success. Its connection with the world of fashion and glamour have become even stronger. Runway stars appearing in the calendar is the equivalent of making it, and the competition between newcomers is fierce. Interesting. Okay. I'm kind of interested in this idea that it takes models a really long time to build up to that level of becoming a model that's sort of posted on this or handpicked to to represent this ultimate glamour but then there's a lot of celebrities and musicians and actors and actresses 
that have been handpicked to be a part of it now. So what is it that you're proving to be a model that you, you sort of have to wait longer or you, or you don't have anything, any other strings in your bow to prove that you deserve it other than just your success of being a model? I don't know, maybe that's a that's a bit of a mad one. Um, throughout the 90s, you know, the usual faces pop up with Christy Turlington, Naomi Campbell in front of the camera, you know, people like Richard Avedon, Peter Lindbergh. Peter Lindbergh, I, I tell you, he's doing one every couple of years. Bruce Weber... You know, the classics, the classics, the big boys of um, glamorous, commercial, high budget, high production photography. And we have uh, in 2000, we have Annie Leibovitz come on board. And I think Annie Leibovitz might be the second woman after Sarah Moon to have a calendar. But I will double check with that. As we move forward through the early 2000s, we've got Nick Knight, who's coming on board. We've got um, Naomi Campbell's featured again, Adriana Lima's featured again, Merton Marcus, uh, Jennifer Lopez, Kate Moss, Giselle, you know, big names. And this is where we see the sort of rise in actresses. Sophia Loren, Penelope Cruz, Hilary Swank, Naomi Watts, a lot. There seems to be a big rise in themes and a big rise in what celebrity can bring. And this is where it sort of becomes the grid walk, the pit lane pass of of sort of glamorous photography in my mind, which I think is quite interesting. Uh, really disappointingly, and I was sort of hoping that they might have removed this, but I suppose if we're being, you know, truth-telling and factual, uh, the the god-awful person that is Terry Richardson shot the 2010 one. Um, I mean, they only sort of mention it very briefly in this, because as we know, you know, he's on, he's in the doggest of dog houses. Um... They describe as a, him as enfant terrible, which I think is generous, known for his raunchy and provocative style. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what to say on that. Um, I, I tried to find some of the pictures from his shoot, and they are... It's very difficult to separate the man from the pictures, I think. And if... They, they, there's something about me that thinks that they could have been Ellen Von Unworth. And if they were, this is where I'm interested in the gaze, then we might feel slightly differently about them. But, you know, that man is so loaded with disgustingness that it's really difficult to separate them. But I, they were shot in Brazil um, on a beach and they are really quite beautiful, the pictures, in, in that sort of... Um, sort of almost kind of retro-y kind of way. Um, but there's a video that goes alongside it. He he shot the video, and I noticed that. Well, no, sorry, he didn't shoot the video. The video is of him shooting, um, the pictures, and the person who directed the video, videoed it. I tried to find some information on them, 
but I couldn't. There just literally was nothing. So I suppose they were slung out on their ass as well, which is, you know, that's never a bad thing. Um, but the video is gopping. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's um, I mean, it's difficult for me to talk about that in this context because I suppose there is a lot of people who would argue that everything I'm talking about today is objectifying and soft porn and, you know, everything. And I suppose there's a level of subjectiveness and there's taste and there's, you know, cultural upbringing and how you feel about certain things. But I think that video for me, given the context of what it is in this calendar with these women who are, you know, well-respected and they're philanthropists as well as models and never mind about as well as models, you know, you're a model, you're a human being. Um, it's just, it's so uncomfortable and I mean, it's a testament to their professionalism because you can see they're just thinking, what a fucking lech. But um, yeah, that's, if anybody's seen that or anybody knows about that, um, we can sort of weigh in on it. But I don't know if you remember, but in the last episode, we briefly mentioned Terry Richardson. So I'd kind of like to not mention him again, if possible, unless I do a whole episode on why he's such a wanker. Um but I suppose, you know, when he went down, he took American apparel with him. And I don't think that's an awful thing either. But, you know, let's move on. Oh, so 2011 was Carl Lagerfeld, another, st another stand-up chat with high morals. Um, but yeah, moving, moving through. Oh, 2013 was Steve McCurry, for fuck's sake. Um, whose shots for Pirelli revealed the changing social and economic situation in Brazil. I'm sure it did. I've seen some of them. Um, I would almost describe it as like the dictionary definition of poverty porn. But he deserves little to no airtime, so I'm just going to scoot past that. To mark the 50th anniversary of the Pirelli calendar in 2014, it was decided to edit the photos that had been taken by Helmut Newton in 1985, but for which various reasons had never been published. Hmm, <gasps> interesting. Hmm, I better have a look at that. This is quite fun, actually. So... By the 1980s, Helmut Newton was a giant of fashion photography, we know, da -da -da -da, and having him shoot the Pirelli calendar was great, but after Newton was called away for family reasons during the shoot, his work remained unseen for the next 30 years. <gasps> Remarkably, its style, black and white, and more demure than overt, seemed to suit the year of its eventual publication, 2014, better than it did in 1986 and it provided a legendary name to mark the calendar's 50th birthday. Hmm. Oh, okay, so, when he was shooting, the, he was shooting the Italian version, and one of the rules was, oh, so they put no limits on him, apart from the fact that the Pirelli logo had to feature in every picture. God, that'd be a lot. For his interpretation of the calendar, complete with tyres, Newton produced what can only be described as a homage, let's say, because I can't pronounce that other word, to the archetypal Italian woman and the Italian way of life. The first shots were taken in Monte Carlo. <sighs> okay. 
great. Where Newton had a home and coincided with the Monaco Grand Prix. Oh, this is just, this is what I'm talking about. The other location was Poderio Terreno, wine estate in Chianti. Uh, where cypress trees, farmhouses and the Tuscan countryside provided the backdrop for Newton's vision. Whether clambering up a tree or standing in a field of corn, the sultry models he featured recall the heroines of Italian neo-realist cinema, such as Sophia Loren, Lucia Bose and Silviana Mangano. Love that. When Newton was unexpectedly called back to, a Monte, Car- to Monte Carlo to deal with a family emergency, his stylist and creative assistant on the shoot... Manuela Pavesi took over. A fashion editor at Vogue Italia since 1973, Pavesi had worked with leading photographers Guy Bourdin, Albert Watson and Irving Penn, as well as Newton on the editorial for the magazine and a number of ad campaigns. For the few remaining calendar shots, Newton left precise instructions on what they should be and how the Hasselblad was to be positioned. Watch out. Pavesi set up the scenes and gave the signal to Newton's assistant Xavier they're loving the names on this to take the pictures it was a pivotal (laughs) no it was a pivotal experience for Pavese Christ they're getting me on this that encouraged her to branch out from styling and start taking photographs of Vogue Italia Luomo Vogue Days and Confuse and ID among other publications love those right we'll definitely put those up on Instagram how interesting. The King of Kink. I love a helmet, Newton. I really do. But again, you know, it's, I'm saying that and I think about this sort of... I spoke about this in the first episode and I'm not afraid to be critiqued about this sort of devil and angel that lives within me, which is I love these photographs that can be seen with a variation of variation of variety of you know lenses and you know people think it's objectifying and and it's advantageous and the first thing is I think that a a lot of finger pointing takes a lot of the um, weight out of real accusations like the Terry Richardson um, and sort of by brushing the whole thing with the same concept really dilutes what what's being said there and and accusations like that um but also there's a lot of it that i completely understand um and i resonate and i understand that if you're making work maybe not this so much but if you're making work for the mainstream then a lot of that needs to be taken into account but then similarly you can't be making work for the mainstream to please everybody, I suppose, because that that's sort of irrelevant. No one's going to have the same taste. No one's going to like the same things. I think there's also like this, I don't know, I still carry this, this weight and this chip on my shoulder that I sort of, I don't know if it's a chip on my shoulder that I mentioned in the first episode, which is when you grow up with these ideas of glamour and aspiration and you're and you're working towards these things and you know i'm looking at this there's a one of these helmet newton pictures of a woman in italy and you know that there's a way her dress is sort of falling across her bust her bust 
her bust. Sorry, I'm such a prude. Her bust. Um, and this sort of dress is falling off her shoulders and she's got sort of t tussled, tousled uh, curly hair. You know, this is, this is what I think is, not what I think is sexy and that's, you know, it, but it's, um, that's ambitious for me. You know, it's that's what I want to go for. That's what I want to look like. And if that sort of makes me, you know, a cog in this sort of manufacturing wheel of capitalism, it's, it's really difficult because I want to take pictures like Helmut Newton. I want to, you know, these ideas of, of these sort of threads that they touch on this idea of he's the king of kink and you know there's a picture of just legs in the air and you know these are all things that really appeal to me they also appeal to me outside of a mainstream context you know there's there's a massive link for me between Helmut Newton and Iraqi for example you know this oh wouldn't it be great if Iraqi shot one of these calendars but you know, again, taken out of context. Sorry, Luke's just slammed the door. So, yeah, um, it's all about context, I suppose. But then, is it because if a work only sort of stands up in a in a moral way in its context, then perhaps it's no good at all. I don't know, but um, I'm definitely open to this idea of criticism. But I'm also open to the idea that. People like to look at nudity and they like to look at beautiful people with no clothes on. And I believe in the divine feminine. I don't know, you know? These are, there's so many questions and I and I, I, I know it almost sounds like a bit of a cop out, but um I felt like that was a good time to raise that point. I'll probably get back onto it later. So almost leading quite nicely on from that, we jump to 2016. Um, we're going to skip 2015. There's Stephen Meisel. Okay, cool. 2016 was Annie Leibovitz, another person who I didn't think would get as much airtime on this podcast as they have done so far. But um, there we are. She decided to portray 13 successful women from all walks of life, all walks of life, but they all are all celebrities, and they are all beautiful. Uh, the tennis champion Serena Williams posed in front of her camera, as did the singer Patti Smith, the performer and musician Yoko Ono, and the critic and writer Fran Lebowitz. But among others, there were also Tavi Jen Jevison. Do you remember from Style Rookie? <gasps> Style Rookie. What a throwback. That was amazing. Um... So yeah, this was this was the moment of people being uh, welcomed for I don't know for sort of being themselves, which I suppose they're not playing characters. They were to represent. I know. I think this was the first. Oh yeah, so, so the, this one's the precursor to the. Peter Limburg. I like on here they write the following year the baton passed to Peter Limburg. Peter Limburg's in a fucking baton relay race because he's had this baton every other calendar. Um, so so Annie Leibovitz decided to take people that weren't sort of conventional models, and then Peter Limburg went a step further and went for 
the first calendar that I believe wasn't retouched and it was minimal makeup. So the following year, the baton passed to Peter Lindbergh. The, the baton passed a million times. At a time when the world's leading media channels were portraying women as ambassadors of perfection and youthfulness, Lindbergh offered and supported a different kind of beauty, not perfect but more real, and capable of arousing emotions. Hence the title, Emotional. Interesting. So, Nicole Kidman, Penelope Cruz, Uma Thurman... Oh, oh, sorry. It was only his third calendar, is what I'm reading here. Fair enough. But yeah, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't retouched, um, and it was very much stripped back, as stripped back as it can be with a multi multi million pound production. But there we are. Okay, so in 2018, we have our second calendar with an all black cast. Um, not just models this time, we have actors, singers, celebrities, you name it. So this was Tim Walker's um, calendar and he went for an Alice in Wonderland theme, which I really like. And I want to read out all the characters that are played by everyone. So Whoopi Goldberg is the Royal Duchess, RuPaul is the Queen of Hearts, uh, Lapita, is it Lapita? Yeah, Lapita's the Dormouse. Sorry, they've spelled Dormouse wrong or is that right dormouse d-o-r-m-o-u-s-e that's not right is it um who else was, oh, on here it says puff daddy but on the pirelli website it says sean diddy combs so p diddy and naomi campbell are the royal beheaders little yachty little yachty little yachty who's little yachty he's the prince i think um and we've got ducky thought as alice and I saw on, on the Pirelli website, it says that, where is it? Ducky Thought, whose personal story is the daughter of Sudanese refugees who moved to Australia, made her the perfect modern-day reincarnation of Alice, a heroine with no roots and a symbol of restlessness. The main photo of Ducky is so beautiful and so quintessentially Tim Walker that I'll have to put it up. It's just the most... The colours are so oozing and everything is just really very, very beautiful. So before we move on from 2018, I just wanted to read this little extract that I found, which sort of gives a little bit more depth to the Alice in Wonderland, Tim Walker extravaganza. Um, and we've got some quotes in here that I also think are really interesting. Following last year's creation by Peter Lindbergh, Walker collaborated with two eminent artists in their own right. Shona Heath, one of Britain's leading creative directors and set designers, and the fashion icon Edward Eninfall, who was the stylist behind this year's elaborate costumes. Commenting on his contribution to this year's calendar, Eninfall, who recently became both the first male and the first black editor of British Vogue, said it is very important that the story of Alice be told to a new generation. Her adventure in Wonderland resonates with the world we live in today. Obstacles we have to overcome and the idea of celebrating difference. Growing up in London, I often lived in a fantasy world of fairy tales and detective novels. Alice was always one of my favourite characters. I always felt like I was with her on her journey through Wonderland, and all of these extraordinary characters became my friends. Well, all but the scary queen and her beheaders. To see a black Alice today means that children of all races can embrace the idea of diversity from a very young age and also acknowledge that beauty comes in all colours. Culturally, we are living in a diverse world. 
Projects like this, the remarkable Pirelli calendar, demonstrate that there is still hope in what feels like an increasingly cynical reality. So yeah, I thought that was interesting to include. Um, so yeah, that's 2018. And then... Then we have 2019 is small films. Okay. And there's Gigi Hadid, Alexander Wang. Oh, so we've got a sort of mixed sex one there. Cool. And then to sort of finish it off, we've got Paolo Reversi, who I think Paolo Reversi did one in the 80s. And I think that's the one that my dad has. But I could be wrong. Um, so Paolo Reversi's was all about the versatility of women. Shakespeare's tragedy, looking for Juliet. Juliet is played by nine women. Nine different women. Emma Watson, Claire Foy, Rosella. Interesting. So yeah, and then we've got um, no calendar in 2021. And then we've got Brian Adams in 2022. And I actually love the Brian Adams one. I don't love it so much for the pictures, but I love the cast. We've got Iggy Pop, ugh, Rita Aurora gag. Um, sorry, Rita, that's actually really harsh. Sorry. I just, I feel like I could do a whole other episode on Rita Aurora. Like, how is she top tier on everything? But everybody I speak to feels the same way about me. And not feels the same way about me. Oh my God, slip of the tongue. Feels the same way about her, which is that she's really fucking annoying. Anyway. Uh, we've got Iggy Pop, Rita Ora, Cher, Grimes, Nomani, Jennifer Hudson, Sweaty, St. Vincent, Bohan Phoenix. Bohan Phoenix? Nice. So, yeah. Uh, and Brian Adams, he's featured in his own as well. If I was to shoot it, I think I'd feature in my own as well. And now we have the most recent one. Now, the most recent one I think is super interesting, and I listened to it. Uh, I listened to a podcast about it the other day, so we can sort of get into that and get into um, Emma Summerton, who is the photographer, and the title of it is Love Letters to the Muse. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. been distracted by people's Instagram pictures of all this week. I'm sulking, to be honest. Um, but, you know, pushing that to one side, let's talk about this year's Pirelli calendar. Um, again, I'm going to sort of read off the website because it's fairly new, so I don't really know too much about it. Um, other than the fact that I think it's really beautiful. So, at the moment we have a calendar, the official shots with the calendar, and there's a film as well. The 2023 Pirelli calendar arrives in a large creamy white envelope, delicately embossed with the image of a butterfly. It forms the perfect packaging for what lies within Emma Summerton's Love Letters to the Muse, a series of sumptuous portraits that honour the women that have inspired the Australian photographer nice okay so we've got lots of different models and they are all representing different characters different tropes um and these have sort of come from a relationship that's quite personal between the photographer and 
the, the models themselves. Now, before we get into this, I did read um, that I was completely wrong. And Emma Somerton is the fifth woman to have put her name to the calendar. So, um, so Sarah Moon in 1972, Joyce Tennyson in 1989, Inez van Lamswerde and her partner in 2007 and Annie Leibovitz in 2000 and 2016. So, oh no, maybe I said Annie Leibovitz was the, yeah, I said Annie Leibovitz was the second, but anyway, either way I was wrong. Uh, so that's the actual information. So, this is under the sort of subheading stories to tell. The photographer Muse was a starting point for Somerton's concept with the model Guinevere Van Sinus, who's known for her love of taking photos. This could be me. Um, then we have um, painters. We have Cara Delevingne as the performer, entertaining her audience whilst being honest about her own life struggles. She's a musician and actress. We've got Carly Kloss, the tech savant. Um, having pioneered coding classes for girls and she's in a sort of virtual reality type uh, landscape. Bella Hadid, I think this one's a bit of a cop-out. Bella Hadid is the sprite who only reveals as much of herself as she wants you to know. I don't know about that one. Um, Ashley Graham is the activist, of course, because she's incredible um, and she's challenging body image, uh, which is amazing. Um, Adjoa Aboa is the queen whose composure and regal demure uh, belie the inner struggles she bears with the elegance of Nefertiti yes because she has had some personal struggles Lila Moss is the seer the, the young but old soul is at one with the earth imparting wisdom from her magical garden that's a stretch uh, Emily Ratajowski is the writer interesting preciously is the storyteller um because of their roles in films so yeah interesting um and we have an art director tenzin wild who's on board as well um that were to help to create images that absorb the reader conjuring dreamy atmospheric realms where art and nature collide interesting um the pictures, you have to go and have a look at them. They're amazing. And there's a film as well. I'll link everything on Instagram. I'm I'm kind of loving this one because, as I'm going to sort of read in a little minute, it does really seem to be this beautiful tie between who you are as a person and what you look like as a person. And that is really important, I think, to me. And those are things that I've really struggled with. And I sort of mentioned this in the previous episode about, um, you know, taking my acrylic nails off before I started my master's degree. Um, sometimes feeling like I look a bit overdressed. Not, not that I dress like a madman, but, you know, there's sort of, it always seems to be sort of effortlessly cool in the sort of art world. And, and I don't really, I don't ever think I look effortlessly cool. I look like it's probably taken me a long time to get ready. Um, and I don't know, and I'm kind of interested in this sort of, you you know, celebration of intelligence and inside things, but also, you know, to be beautiful and not to be judged by the outside or inside and all of these sorts of stuff. Um, 
yeah, some misconceptions perhaps. And then also, isn't there this sort of bigger question as well that like, you know, so quickly we make judgments on, on photographs and, you know, the weight that they carry and the danger that they they can sort of, you know, um, reinforce stereotypes and, um, you know, remember like thinspiration and, you know, things like that. But then also, I suppose it's the role that they play in advertising. But, you know, there's a part of me that's like, fucking hell, they're just pictures. Like, we talk about this sort of stuff so in depth, but like, Sometimes it's just a fucking picture. I don't know. I don't know. But anyway. Um, but then I suppose that we can talk about the role of the photographer, the role of the model, the role of the props. You know, where's, where's the picture going? Who's seeing it? I don't know. There's a lot to talk about. Probably it becomes maybe in my mind a little bit two-dimensional because I don't have somebody here sort of talking with me. So I'm I'm sort of trying to fight myself whilst agreeing with myself. Ironically, the bit that I'm going to read out now is is subheaded with a, a bigger conversation. So this is a bit of a background on Emma Summerton. Originally from Australia and now based in New York and London, Summerton has a long has long approached fashion photography not simply as the act of taking a picture of a model, but as I, as a dimensional exchange in which the woman's identity, passions, and interests inform the image. Nice. I love a bigger conversation with the models I'm working with about who they are, what they do, and what their life is about, said Summerton. The 39th photographer to shoot the calendar. Oh, I was trying to work out the numbers in my head then. That's why I was sort of hesitant. I think it opens up a different kind of collaboration, which creates a different, stronger image in my mind. Summerton's approach was praised by the models who described the experience of this calendar as magical, dreamy, and in some cases, emotional. In referencing aspects of the women's actual identities, Summerton has allowed them to play out a part of themselves. As Kloss, who previously appeared in the calendar in 2013, commented after the shoot, I think the reason that I'm in the Pirelli calendar this year is because of who I am as a person and what I stand for. Which I think is really cool. Um, and I think that's, that's something obviously to be celebrated. And there's this sort of strange... I suppose what's kind of something that just popped into my head is that, you know, all of these things are being celebrated, but the accessibility of these pictures is limited because, you know, there's only 200,000 made and they're distributed to the high and mighty. But then I suppose with the digital presence, those stories are still being shared because, you know, Instagram is free and the internet is semi-free if you've got the you know, the tools to, to get on there. Um, so I think that's all kind of, kind of interesting. Um, and people are actually able to see, you know, people who represent them on a higher stage. So I mentioned a little bit earlier about looking and talking about this sort of stuff in hindsight. Um, the context of everything and you know how can we go back on things and reassess them and reassess imagery and you know for example the Terry Richardson stuff is viewed very differently now as it was at the time and and that sort of long extended period of Helmut Newton's images going missing like what does it mean for them to come back in 2013 and you know 
all of these things and and you can sort of think maybe you know there was a sort of wholesome element to it earlier on with the dedication to the olympics and film directors and themes and stuff like that and then there's a lot of ways of looking at it which is you know essentially it's a calendar full of naked women that's given to rich people i don't know um I'll probably revisit this or maybe revisit it on Instagram. Um, I'd love if anybody has any sort of semi-strong opinions. No hate mail, I have said that before. Um, To maybe, you know, give us a comment, give us a message, you know, start a little conversation going. And I'm sure that this will creep back in when we, you know, go forth and talk about um, other things in this series which I've got lined up for the next season. Um, but if there's anything that you'd like us to talk about, I want to say us, I suppose me and my 10 personalities, um, or anything that you think, you know, could be touched on further and X, Y, Z, I kind of maybe want to put something together where people can contribute to, but, um, that's sort of on the back burner at the moment, but if anyone's got any ideas, that'd be great. So I'm going to leave it there for now. Um, I'm going to sign off. I hope everyone has a great Silverstone weekend. Um, probably be rooting for the Ferraris. Um, obviously love to see Lewis on a podium again. Uh, Lando, I suppose, you know, all, all the home race people. Um, but yeah, also what's kind of fun, and, and I think this might be interesting for a couple of people, is instead of there being 20 garages this weekend and 20 teams, there's actually 22 garages and 21 teams because the final garage on the in the pit lane is um, a set for the new Brad Pitt Formula One film and he is playing a, a driver called Sonny Hayes I think um, so they took this as the opportunity to you know start filming so we'll maybe we'll see Brad Pitt on the podium. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of fun. Um, have a good one and we'll see you soon. Hopefully it won't be such a long wait. Uh, thank you. You can find us on Instagram at aka photoslut or you can email us at aka photoslut at gmail.com.